Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, what do the Dutch know that we don't? Dutch parents, teachers, and doctors talk early, often, and frankly to their kids about sex and relationships. For her new book, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape, Peggy Orenstein conducted ongoing, in-depth interviews with dozens of young women. She asked questions many of us can't or won't, and she listened. The result is an honest picture of the sex lives of 15 to 20-year-old women. It's a landscape marked by sexual objectification and myth, the influence of porn, the prevalence of rape, mixed cultural messages, and our failure to educate and talk to young people about sex. Ornstein weaves in expert advice in an effort to promote a renewed respect for young women and a healthier, more positive sexual culture in America. As she says, opening a door to necessary conversations. Peggy Ornstein is the best-selling author of Cinderella Ate My Daughter and Waiting for Daisy. She spoke with Town Hall Seattle's Katie Sewell on April 20th. Anna Tatashev recorded their conversation. Please note, this recording contains information of a sexual nature about sexual education. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Ware Harmon introduces the program. To introduce tonight's guests, allow me to introduce Amy Michael, a board member at Women's Funding Alliance. The Women's Funding Alliance envisions a world where all women and girls have the chance to thrive by advancing leadership and economic opportunities for them in the world and in Washington State. It's really great to have had the Women's Funding Alliance's collaboration this spring, so please welcome Amy Michael. Well, thanks, Ware, for that great introduction. On behalf of Women's Funding Alliance and our partners here at Town Hall, um, I'd like to thank you for joining us this evening, and thank you for showing up for girls. At Women's Funding Alliance, our vision is to create a world where all women and girls can live, lead, and thrive. Our mission is to advance leadership and economic opportunity for all women and girls in Washington State. At Women's Funding Alliance, we know that when girls are taught how to lead with loud, clear voices, they become a formidable force for change through their own leadership. When girls are encouraged to lead in every part of their lives, they are able to make smart and healthy decisions that put them on the path towards thriving. How many of you out there tonight are moms and dads of daughters or people of influence in girls' lives? Awesome. So I am so excited to be here tonight because I think if we're going to ask our girls to be strong leaders in the face of tough challenges, that we also need to be tough. And that means having uncomfortable conversations sometimes about things like girls and sex. So I'm excited that you're all here and that we are all ready to take on this challenge for the girls in our lives. Now I have the pleasure of introducing tonight's speakers. Peggy Orenstein is a best-selling author and journalist whose book, Schoolgirls, remains on the reading list for women's studies courses all over the country, 20 years after it was first released, right? (laughs) Other bestsellers of hers include Cinderella Ate My Daughter and Sex and Girls, which she will be discussing tonight. Orenstein is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine and has been published, anthologized, and featured in periodicals and media around the country. An Oberlin College grad, 
Orenstein resides in Northern California with her husband and her daughter, Daisy. Joining Peggy tonight, we have Katie Sewell, who is the programming director here at Town Hall. Katie also served as the lead producer and host on KOW Public Radio nine of those years. She was producing Weekday with Steve Scher. Katie has worked on popular NPR programs like Radio Lab and A Prairie Home Companion and is the co-host and creator of the Rome-based podcast, The Bittersweet Life. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Peggy Orenstein and Katie Sewell. Hello, everyone. Uh, and thank you, Peggy, for being here. Thank you, Women's Funding Alliance. And uh, I just want to say that before we came out here, we both discovered that we were from Minnesota. <laughs> and the odds that two Minnesotans would be casually talking about girls and sex would be something I would never imagine as a child. But we're not Scandinavian. Yeah, we're not, Scandinavian. we're not Scandinavian. Maybe that helps. But it does stand to reckon that we are going to be pretty frank and not shy tonight. And hopefully everyone will feel great about that. I'm never shy, Katie. No. No. No, we'll find out just how unshy you are mm-hmm. tonight. Let me uh, start by, f- maybe this would be explain how not shy you are. You talk to a lot of young women about their sex lives for this book. Can you explain how you went around finding those women and who they were? Yeah. So I talked to 70, roughly 70 young women between the ages of 15 to 20. And they spanned a pretty broad ethnic range, um, but they were all either college-bound or in college. And I chose, and I found them in all different ways. I mean, they, you know, friends of friends of friends. When I go to colleges and speak, I'd put out an email. If I was at an event like this, I'd say, hey, I'm writing a book. If anybody wants to talk to me, come up to me and I'll get your email address. All kinds of ways. Um, but I purposely picked this group, this demographic, because I wanted to talk to girls who we think of as having opportunity and the girls that we think of as being the beneficiaries of the feminist movement. Because, you know, if those girls who are effective in school, who can speak out where we've made all this progress for them in their education, all this progress for them professionally, they're political, they're forthright, they're like leaning in all over the place, you know? If even they were toppling in their personal lives, then it would be hard to deny that we had a problem. How did you... Make the, why do you think they volunteered? I guess that's the real question. Why did they want to tell their story? I think in part because nobody ever asked them. I would get that a lot, that they had never had the opportunity to sit and think through and talk about issues relating to their intimate lives, and they were kind of hungry to do so. And in fact, you know, now, I mean, people say, how did I get them to talk so frankly to me? And there was really no trick to that. I just asked and listened. And I will say that the first couple of interviews that I did, just between you guys and me, I totally bombed. And I, I interviewed these, these couple of girls, and um, then I wanted to, and I was so kind of taken aback by what they were telling me uh, that I think I, I, I just kind of was going, what? <laughs> what? What did you just say? And... and um, Later, I wanted to do some follow-up with them, and they uh, uh, wouldn't respond to me. I tried emailing, I tried texting, I tried Facebooking, no response. So I really, I guess I did have a learning curve where I had to learn how to 
speak to girls so that they would know I was there to hear them and to hear them in a non-judgmental way and to bring their voices forward so that we could all have this conversation around what was going on with them. So is there any way, before we really get into this, some of the nitty-gritty topics, for you to, I don't know, change the mind of any parent who sits here and thinks, now that's not my child. Like, she's not the same as those girls in your book. Ask. Ask. <laughs> no, you know, I, I don't know if it's your... Tr- I don't know. Um, but I can say that it's, the book provides a place where you can have that discussion. Or even if you just listen to one of the interviews, a lot of people tell me that they inter- listen to the Fresh Air interview that I did with their kids, and it sparks a lot of discussion, whether it's about them or about their friends or about the world that they're in. Um, it's a way to start talking to them. And whether or not your child is sexually active, however we want to define that, and we're going to discuss how we're going to define that, um, they still need to learn about ethics, responsibility, safety, reciprocity, pleasure, entitlement. So that is your child. That's everybody's child. Yeah. I'm debating on whether or not we should talk terms first before we get into porn. But I think I'm going to go with terms first. How would you say that the word, what does the word empowerment Oh, mean to word. girls today, <laughs> young women, teenage girls, college girls. That word. Um, I try not to use it because it's such. It's one of those words that's been so co-opted. It basically means like you know your power to go out and buy lipstick or something. I'm not sure. Um, but I think what 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 you're really asking is you know with with my previous book Cinderella, my daughter. I was looking at the culture of little girlhood and I was looking at the ways that. Um, marketing from the very youngest ages was telling girls that how they looked was more important than who they are. And and I was concerned about that because I'm a mom too and I have a um, daughter who's now almost 13. And so when I got to this book, I became much more conscious about how that kind of pink and pretty message became about hot. And hot is mar- is sold to girls. I mean, it's it's such a narrow commercialized, superficial idea of what's sexy and what's attractive. And whereas, and it tells girls over and over that how their body looks to others is more important than how that body feels to themselves. And whereas, I think those of us who are Gen X or baby boom parents would have seen that as a message to push back against, to protest, that kind of self-objectification, that kind of sexualization. It's sold to today's girls, and this is where the... Com- oh, the book's not there, <laughs> reflexively. Um, the, the complicated, and the subtitle comes in. Um, it's sold to girls as um, a form of empowerment, of personal empowerment and self-confidence, and often the most salient form of personal empowerment and self-confidence. So I talked to a girl for instance, who was telling me, she, she showed me a picture of herself going to a party and she was wearing you know, a little crop top and a mini skirt and, and six-inch heels. And she said, um, I'm proud of my body and I never feel more liberated than when I'm wearing skimpy clothes. But then a few minutes later, she told me that a year earlier she wouldn't have worn that outfit because she was 25 pounds heavier. And as she put it, some jerky guys would have called me the fat girl. And... So then, you know, you have to kind of ask young women who gets to be proud of which body and under what circumstances and how liberating can you say that is when the threat of ridicule lurks right around the corner. So what about 
the bases these days? <laughs> what are we talking about when we're talking about first base, uh, second bases. base? That was one of the places where I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> because all of a sudden, um, oral sex, female to male only, of course, got thrown in there. Where did I say it was? At base three? Was that, yeah, it had become... Somewhere there? Two, three? <laughs> yeah, it had become oral sex. Um, and uh, that was kind of a shock because that wasn't even in the... I mean, I want to talk about challenging the baseball metaphor, too. Can right. we... Sure. Yeah. I mean, the baseball metaphor is not... Is, I mean, that's, I think, thing one that we can do to change the conversation around girls and boys. <laughs> Get rid of the baseball metaphor. In, which, in fact, I mean, there, there was a boy who said at one point in, in the book towards the end... This is like skipping way to the end, but th- this boy said, um, you know, in, in baseball, there's winners and there's losers. Who's supposed to be the loser in sex? And, you know, for, it, was really, it, was, it was why I ended in a co-ed classroom, again, skipping way ahead, but it was because, um, you know, I wanted to see kids working that out together and to have a boy say that and just make that shift in his head from being an adversary to a partner. And really, I think when you think about the baseball thing, I think girls are actually the field. I don't think they're the other team, Right. No, there is no other team. There is no other team. It's the field. So, so the, what, I, what I talk about in the book is Al Vernacchio's metaphor, which is um, sex is a pizza. Yeah? And you know that one? It's the best metaphor because pizza, you know, is a shared experience where everybody's invested in, you know, having a good time. So, like, first you decide if you want to go out to pizza, right? And then if you want to go out to pizza, maybe you like pepperoni and I like mushrooms so maybe we go halvesies but we you know we negotiate and maybe we have pepperoni this time and mushrooms next time or maybe you keep insisting on pepperoni and I'm a vegetarian and you know I'm not gonna have pizza with you anymore you know (laughs) there's just so many ways that you can go to talk about an experience that's mutual reciprocal where everybody's invested in the other person having an equally good time where you communicate where there's shared joy I mean it's just it's so much better so thing number one all of you sex is a pizza not baseball but you've said that the what they were considering I don't know let's not call them bases let's just call them stages nature is of a relationship when it comes to sex or dating what are we looking at I'm sorry, I missed the first part of that question. What you, when it comes to dating, yeah. sex or relationships... Well, dating is type. last. Dating is last. Dating is last. So that, that would, you know, I, particularly in college, but increasingly in high school, um, kids are living in a hookup culture. And we have to step back when we talk about that and first of all say, hookup has no meaning. That word has actually no meaning. It can be kissing, it can be oral sex, it can be vaginal intercourse, it can be anything... Um, and every time I talk to a young person and they say, well, so then I hooked up with so-and-so, I have to say, stop, define your terms. Um, and they actually don't know what one another means when they talk about hooking up because, um, and so they kind of, they tend, kids tend to overestimate what, uh, what their peers are doing because it's, it's purposely ambiguous so that they don't, you know, distances them and then they don't, they don't exactly know what's going on there. Um, and, and what, but what hookup culture is, is this, so... Kids today did not invent casual sex. Please. Um, <laughs> what is different is the, the idea that it's normalized, that sex proceeds rather than rises out of intimacy as, as the norm. And in college and increasingly in high schools, 
Um, you may choose to be part of that culture, you may choose to embrace that culture, you may choose to opt out of that culture, but you have to define yourself in relationship to that culture and figure out your sexuality in relationship to that norm. Did you, were you able in all your discussions to formulate an idea of why? Why, rather than dating first, why the switch? Why that happened? I don't know why that happened. I know kind of when it happened. When did it happen? It kind of just escalated in the 90s and towards the late 90s. Um, Along with the internet? Or no? Yeah, but I, I, the correlation's not causation. You know, I don't, no, I, don't, I don't know why that happened. That's a good question. But, um, but girls had all kinds of different ways of talking about it. And some, you know, one of the things that was important to me was to let them have their own voice about these issues, about these ideas. So when we were talking about pop culture and hotness and all of that, I would argue, you know, that we would argue with each other about, you know, Nicki Minaj versus Lena Dunham, who was subversive and who was, you know, not, and who was limiting and who was liberating and all these things. So with hookup culture, some girls would come in, sit down and say to me, I'm tired of seeing girls portrayed as a victim, as victims of the hookup culture. I'm a participant. This serves me. Um, I don't want a boyfriend. I don't have time for a boyfriend. I want to just hang out with my friends and have a good time, and this is the way that I'm going to do it. You know, which, okay. Um, and, and what I became invested in, for me, because I don't feel like it's my job to tell you hookups good, hookups bad, relationships good, relationships bad, but was to say what you are likely to, what a, a girl is likely to get or not get out of a hookup. And so what you're likely to get is a war story, a conquest, um, a feeling of being desirable for a night, a warm body, um, an adrenaline rush. What you're probably not going to get is good sex or the t- practice with the tools that you need to have good sex or create intimacy. Hmm. So know that going in. Right, right. So I know that a lot of people here are wondering where does porn play into all this? Oh, it doesn't. It does not at all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, I read the you book. Know, it's been a long book tour, and sometimes I just got to mess with a person. I can't help myself. I'm like, um, I read the book. I feel like you... Okay. Yeah, no, I'm um, just... <laughs> no, porn, how, yes. porn has been a game changer. It really has. And one of the things in the, that you see in the research is that um, there was a, a survey done of college students a national survey in England, actually, that found that 60% of them um, say that they consult porn in part as sex education, even as 75% said they know it's about as realistic as pro wrestling. Um, So, you know, I think that that happens for a number of reasons. I mean, when we have this culture that is littered with female body parts, where women's bodies are used to sell everything, where sex is everywhere, where they can access it on the internet younger, they can access porn younger, it's more explicit because it's you know, competitive. And yet we never have frank, honest discussions with young people about sex. So it's all out there and it's not in here. So kids, when they don't have it in schools, they don't have it from their parents, they're, they're, they would tell me they would look at porn, you know... Uh, Girls would say things like, I didn't know how to give a blowjob, so I looked, I looked at porn to figure out how. Or I didn't know how the pieces, you know, the parts fit together, so I looked at porn to figure out how. But it's really, it's not where we want kids 
you know, it's to get their sex education. It's more of that performative sexuality, sexiness for, for women, distorted bodies, distorted attitudes. And young women would say to me, I mean, it's, I guess on the sort of more um, benign, if you will, L, and a number of young women said to me, my boyfriend wants to know why I don't make noises like the women in porn when we have sex. And I would get so frustrated, not with them, but with the idea that they asked that, you know, that that was a question, that my kind of journalistic remove would, would crumble. And I would say, look, it's a movie. And a movie has to have a soundtrack. Or it's a silent movie. <laughs> you know? So somebody's got to make noise. And that would be like a revelation. And then on the kind of more extreme end, what we've been seeing is... Um, a, a significant rise in anal sex among kids. And, um, you know, I don't want to demonize a particular behavior, but we're talking about young women, and we haven't gotten to this, but I imagine we will, that, that, you know, for the most part have not masturbated, have not had an orgasm, have not had an orgasm with a partner, cannot talk about their needs and desires and limits with their partner. And when you look into the research on this, what you find is there was, a, there was a survey of kids 16 to 18, so high school-age kids, and what they found was that um, the rise in anal sex was driven by young men who uh, were not doing it as an act of intimacy with a partner, but kind of to check it off the bucket list, like, like you know, the goal-oriented basis idea. Phase um, five. Yes, that was what they called it. Um, and that they were doing it to compete with other boys and that they believed that they would have to and could coerce their partner into it. And that um, and the girls reported that it hurt. And what was interesting was that both the girls and the boys said blamed that um, the pain on the girls, saying that they were naive or flawed or unable to relax. So, you know, a lot of this, the way that I put it in the book is in terms of this idea that really intrigued me that was this idea of intimate justice and that was an idea that um, the, a phrase that was coined by Sarah McLelland who is a, a psychologist at University of Michigan and it's you know just like the ways that who does the dishes in your house or who vacuums the rug is in part a political issue right we've been talking about this forever you know in the women's movement um, Sex, too, has those dynamics. And so you have to ask, who's entitled to engage sexually? Who's entitled to enjoy it? Who, uh, how do, uh, who is the primary beneficiary of a sexual experience? And how each partner defines good enough? And I think that truly those, those questions are thorny for adult women. But when you're talking about girls and their early formative experiences that will follow them as they get older, it's especially important because, you know, I just, I don't want girls' early experiences to be something that they have to get over. Would you say that porn is making women or young women sensitized to potential violence that could happen to them, like makes it... More normative? Yeah, you know, that's actually, uh, the research shows that um, both young men and young women who regularly consume porn are um, more likely to believe rape myths, like that a woman asked for it because of the way that she dressed or because of how much she drank. And young women are 
uh, less likely to both step in if they see an, a potential assault in progress and less likely to recognize themselves um, when they're in a dangerous situation. And that may be because one of the things that porn often does is eroticize humiliation and degradation of women. Right. So how would you... I mean, is there... What can a parent say to a child Well, I think the first thing with porn is that you've got to get out in front of it. I mean, you know, talking about it... We recently, since I'm not, oh, I'm going to be on the radio. I can't say this. This is going on the radio, right? Okay. I can't tell stories about my daughter when I'm going to be on the radio. I promise her I wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, but I will say that when, when we talked about porn, you know, I said to her, look, um, you know, like when you see violence on TV or violence in movies, it's not real, right? It's like you, see, you can tell it's fake and they shoot and there's blood and it's not real. It's not what's really happened. Same thing here. This is not real. And, um, but I realized actually that that a, a few weeks after we had that conversation, I think this is not telling a story on her, but the, a few weeks after we had that conversation, we were watching the movie Brooklyn. And I, th- that was a great movie. I love that movie. And it had a very ordinary Hollywood sex scene in it, um, in which, uh, you know, there was like a few seconds of kissing, everybody ripped their clothes off or half their clothes off, then there's like maybe five to ten seconds of what appears to be intercourse, and then everybody's happy. And it occurred to me after having the porn conversation that she was going to see way more of this image, you know, that, that sequence than porn, probably, and that that was just as unrealistic. And so I said, you know how when you watch a movie and somebody takes a cab ride, you see them get into the cab, (laughs) and then you see them get out of the cab, right? You don't see the whole ride in between, because that would take up the whole movie, and it would be tedious. Similarly... When we, Hollywood has, I know it's funny, but it's a really good metaphor for kids, right? It's a, it's a, Hollywood has symbols that it uses, and they're very heteronormative symbols, and they're very male-oriented symbols for what sex is. And you're going to see those symbols over and over, but just like the cab ride, that's just used to signal somebody has had sex. It's not what sex is. So I think it's equally important, actually, to challenge the images that they see in everyday pop, in everyday music videos, in everyday advertising, as it is to challenge the images in porn. I mean, one of the things that you wrote about a lot in the book is that you've kept encountering young women who didn't necessarily expect to feel any kind of pleasure in any kind of sexual encounter. If they were performing oral sex, they certainly didn't expect to get it back. Right, and it's again back to that intimate justice. Who's the primary beneficiary? And particularly with oral sex, it was very clear, both among the girls I talked to and in research, that the primary beneficiary was the boy. And girls had a lot of reasons, again, in trying to surface how they talked about it, about why they um, were willing to perform non-reciprocal oral sex. And sometimes it was because they, uh, want, they liked a boy and they you know, want, wanted to satisfy him. Sometimes it was because it made them feel powerful. Sometimes it was because of popularity. Sometimes it was because they just wanted to end an evening and they didn't want to have intercourse and they didn't know what to do. And they were being pushed. And, you know, but, so there were all kinds of reasons. Um, but, it was, but after hearing a lot of these stories, again... My, my journalistic resolve sort of crumbled, and I started, you know, this, so this was my metaphor that I started using with them for that. I started saying, look, 
if every these were you know real these were feminist girls these were forthright girls these were girls who could bandy about words like you know slut shaming and heteronormativity all the, all over the place. I said, look, what if you were alone? Every time you were alone with a boy, he asked you to go get a glass of water from the kitchen, and he never offered to get you a glass of water, or he just went. You want me to, you know, get you a glass of water? Like, really, you know, begrudgingly? You would not stand for it. And they would laugh, and they would say, yeah, well, when you put it that way. And I would say, well, you know, maybe you should put it that way, that you think it's less insulting to go get water than to perform a sex act. But it was a lot about what they had learned, about this idea that it was okay to engage in sexual behavior, but not okay to enjoy it. And when we talked about things going the other way, it wasn't just that boys didn't want to. It was that girls also felt very uncomfortable with it because they had learned very negative feelings. Both sexes had learned very negative feelings about female genitals. And in the book, what I talk about is... um, I call it the psychological clitoridectomy that we perform on, ki- on girls. Because when, when we have our kids, when we have infant boys and infant girls, parents of infant boys tend to name all the body parts. They tend to at least say, there's your pee-pee, something. But when we have girls, we go right from navel to knees. And then they go into... Be- so, you know, there's no better way to make something unspeakable than to not give it a name. Then they go into puberty education class. And they learn that boys have erections and ejaculations, and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancy. <laughs> and they see the internal diagram that looks kind of like a steer's head, you know? <laughs> and it grays out between the legs. And they never say vulva, they never say clitoris. No surprise, again, you know, fewer than half of girls 14 to 17 have ever masturbated. And then we think that when they go into partnered encounters, that they're going to feel a sense of equality somehow, that they're going to be able to have voice, that they're going to be able to articulate their wants, that they're going to be able to articulate their limits, that they're going to think it's about them. It's not really very realistic. We've set them up for that. So how does that relate to trends in pubic hair? Trends in pubic hair. Well, yeah, the only time... So pubic hair is is a vanishing breed. Um, It has... A lot of the girls that I spoke with, you know, got rid of it before it was there. Um, and it was the only time that they went down there was to shave it. You know, I, they, they never looked, they never touched, except to remove. Um, and that's become a very... And they would talk about it. They would say, well, it makes me feel cleaner. But then again, you know, just like with the girl who had put on the 25 pounds and wouldn't wear the skimpy outfit, when we talked further, they would also express a fear of humiliation. They would express a fear that, you know, they heard some boys talking about a girl who had pubic hair and how grossed out they were. Or um, one of the college professors that I talked to, Debbie Herbenick at University of Indiana University, said that in one of her classes, a boy said, if I, a hookup partner ever had pubic hair, I'd walk out the door. And another of her students who was female emailed her and said that day she went home and took it off. You know, that it was, and, you know, that there were, on college campuses, you see uh, signboards saying, you know, get your spring break wax or, or that kind of thing. And it really, what, what interested me, I guess, was um, I thought about how we started shaving our armpits and legs. And that happened in the 1920s because um, fashions for the first time showed our limbs, flapper fashions. And so the 
taking off of the hair was in part about a new level of public scrutiny. And so I can't help but think that there is an aspect to this. And of course, porn's, you know, in porn, nobody has pubic hair because it gets in the way of the shot. That's why they took it off. It wasn't like for any other reason. It was just, you know, they were trying to see. Um, but it's about a new public scrutiny of young women's genitals and a new feeling that they need to be prepared and will be looked at um, and that it's about how they look rather than how they feel again. And although it's not big, and I don't mean to go into an alarmist territory, but there has, since the, the pubic hair trend has, uh, removing pubic hair trend has begun, and again, that was, took off really after an episode of Sex in the City um, in early 2000s, uh, there's been a rise in um, labiaplasty, which was a word I had to look up. I don't know if you all know, but it's like the surgical trimming of um, the inner or outer uh, lips of the um, vulva. And it's not for sexual functioning. And the most popular, this is the best part, right? The most popular look, when they're going for it, is called the Barbie. Yeah, because Barbie, it's a clam, they call it a clamshell effect because... Barbie is A, made of plastic, and B, doesn't have a vagina. Um, so that's what, what the ideal is. But just the idea that, and, and plastic, the head of the American Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, or whatever it's called, you know, said this is a new way that women are expressing confidence. <laughs> it's a new way to express confidence. And I'll tell you, if you have a daughter who's like feeling anxious about this kind of stuff, there's this art project that you can see online. It's in England. It's called... Um, the Great Wall of Vagina, I believe it's called. And I really wanted my publisher to make it the cover of my book, but they declined. Um, and it's just walls of plaster casts of women's vulvas. And it's, I mean, it's like a fingerprint, you know? I mean, it's just like, it's, it's as varied as a fingerprint. And to just see, you know, 800 <laughs> vulvas in plaster is a way to reinforce that idea that we're all normal. We're all normal, just the way we are. Let's talk about what virginity is today and how girls are thinking about their virginity. What did you find there? Well, virginity is still defined by first intercourse, and I think that we need to challenge that idea a little bit because not that first intercourse isn't a big, a big deal, but it's not the only big deal. And in fact, rates of intercourse and the age of first intercourse have not really changed. But what has changed is the, uh, are these other behaviors, such as oral sex, that are happening more often and younger. And when we don't talk about those uh, ideas to kids, then it, both, it, it makes it so that those things count as not sex. You know, kids are, well, they say, well, it's not really sex, and it's no big deal. And then it's not subject to the same rules around consent, around coercion, um, and it opens the door to a lot of risky behavior and a lot of very disrespectful behavior. So it also, when we reduce virginity um, and reduce sex, I mean, somebody said to me that, uh, there's Deborah Rothman, who's a sex educator, said it's like using the word vegetable for celery. And then you don't talk about any other vegetables because every time you say vegetable, you mean celery. It doesn't make any sense. You just miss everything. Um, so when we talk about sex and just mean intercourse, we're not only missing all the things that heterosexual kids engage in, but we're missing, um, we're, we're completely dismissing what lesbian girls do. 
And so at one point, I was talking to a girl who had never had um, heterosexual sex and heterosexual intercourse. And I said, so how did you know when you weren't a virgin anymore? She said she had to Google it. And uh, Google didn't know. (laughs) So she said, um, so I said, well, what did you decide? And she hemmed and she hawed for a while. And she said, you know, I decided that I wasn't a virgin anymore when I had my first orgasm with a partner. And I thought, wow. You know, what, what if that, for one second, was our definition of virginity. It would completely change how we thought about sex. And again, it's this idea that sex is a pool of experiences, like a pizza. Um, it's a pool of experiences you know, that, that are about warmth, that are about affection, that are about desire, that are about communication, that are about sensation, and not this race to check things off your bucket list. And you know, saying to a young person, really, who, is more, who has more sexual experience? Who's more experienced? The person who spends three hours kissing a partner and experimenting with erotic tension and sensation and communication or the person who gets wasted, hooks up with a random, and unloads their virginity because they want to get rid of it before they go to college. Mm-hmm. But what if a parent is... I think a lot of the virginity message often comes from a parent wanting their kids to delay, to delay, to yeah. delay. Is there a way to, for parents to encourage their kids to keep their virginity until they want to lose it in whatever way they want to lose it without freaking them out or shaming them in some way. Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the key is, is to start these conversations with kids early and often. And they're not just, I mean, they're about sex and they're not about sex. You know, they're about even saying to a girl, what do you want out of an experience? You know, I mean, I, sometimes it's hard for parents to do this. I know this. Sometimes you have to enlist, you, you have to get your team in place. And I know that I've been um, that team member for my friends sometimes. And there was a, a girl that, uh, a friend of mine whose daughter was 16, thinking about having intercourse with her boyfriend, and she said, would you go out and talk to her? And so we went out, and, you know, like everybody, I wanted the floor to swallow me up um, rather than say these words, but I walked my talk, and I said, look, you know, I know you're thinking about this, and let's have the conversation first about safety, about contraception, about um, disease protection, about consent, about all those things. But now let me ask you a few questions. And you don't have to answer them, but just think about them. Have you masturbated? Have you had an orgasm on your own? Have you had an orgasm with your partner? Can you talk to your partner freely about sex? Can you talk to him and tell him what you want, what you need, what you don't like, what you don't want, what your limits are? And if you're answering no to those questions, why are you having sexual intercourse? Why, what do you want out of sexual experience? What are you trying to do here? What, is the, you know, what, what do you want for you? And I can't say that I know what her answers were because I did not make her say and she did not. But she sat there with her eyes like this big. And that young woman is 24 now. And we talk constantly we talk about her sex life, we talk about her job, we talk about her, her applications to graduate school that she's writing now. And, and I feel like that conversation, that first conversation, opened a door where I signaled to her that we could talk in the most intimate way about anything. And it's not really enough to say, you know, if you have any questions, I'm here. Because that's putting the onus on our kids. And we do that, you know, that tends to be what we do. 
So again, you know, if you can't do that, you have to talk to somebody else. And the more kids, I mean, it, it's, it's very clear, and we can talk about the Dutch soon, I think, probably too, that the more kids know, the more educated they are, the more girls understand their entitlement in sexuality, the more they decide, understand that they're not there to provide pleasure, the more discerning they become, the more responsible they become, the more they choose their liaisons with care and have the experiences that they want to have. We haven't even touched on date rape and a lot of the stuff that you talk about about what happens when you go to college. And we're running out of time, and I want to leave time for your, your questions. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, <laughs> where to even begin? You give the statistic, I should read it to you, it's here, uh, that, um, that kids who go to college, oh, here it is, 2015 survey found that half of female undergraduates were victims of non-consensual sexual contact once they went to college. And for me, that was a shocking number. Half of them reported that to be true. What should parents be talking about with kids before they go to college if that is what's being reported from being at college? Well, you know, again, I think um, part of that is the way that we set sex up. When you set sex up as a baseball game, when girls' limits are a challenge to be overcome, you know, when girls see themselves as there to provide male pleasure, you have this inequity in the relationship that leads to a lot more coercion and forced contact and all the way to um, an entitlement to rape. And we need to talk to our sons about that, first of all. I mean, it's, you know, as girls will say to you all the time, the only thing that 100% of rapes have in common is a rapist. And the other piece of the statistics is that in, on college campuses, I mean, that's, not, that's talking about a lot of, of a variety of coercion. And, and I had a conversation with a girl at one point who was telling me that she felt, you know, grateful. That may be the wrong word, but she, was, she, she had never been raped. And I said, well, um, have you ever been uh, coerced into oral sex? And she said, oh, well. Yeah, you know that that, that was, she didn't wasn't counting that, and she told me this story. I was talking about the sh- the shoulder push, which was a big thing that girls would talk about, and she was telling me about you know going back to this guy's room, and they were making out, and he kept pushing, and she kept saying no, and he kept pushing, and she kept saying no, and the third time he got angry, said screw you, kicked her out of his room. It was two in the morning. She was in a very cold climate, um, and she had to walk two miles home. And she cried the whole way. And yet she hadn't made the connection to that being a non-consensual form of sex. Mm-hmm. Why is date rape still so hard for young women to report? Because they get stigmatized. Because they, uh, it's not really a way to win friends and influence people. It doesn't make you popular. You know? I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy. Um, because they think they'll be blamed um, because they were drunk, um, because they have not seen people effectively punished. And I think one of the great, you know, one of the things that I thought I could add to the conversation on assault, and you know, it, was really, it was really hard for me because I didn't want my book to be um, taken over by assault. And it was what I, and, and the story of sexual assault was, was 
breaking the, the activism to combat it on campus, the argument about the activism, the is it, you know, the boys suing, the girls suing, everybody suing, was happening while I was reporting and it was moving very quickly. Um, and it became very important to me to say, okay, we're having this umbrella conversation about assault, but what happens after yes? And that we needed to look more at what happened in consensual encounters to understand the dynamics of some of the non-consensual encounters that we were seeing. So again, you know, I mean, I, I felt in the non-consensual encounters that what I could add as somebody who's been around in this world of girls now for quite a long time um, was history. And it was really important to me to look at and provide in that chapter um, the arc of activism around assault that started in the late 80s and um, was stopped, really squashed, and now has started up again and how it's different and how it's the same and what we can learn and how we can move forward with both boys and girls. A lot of the book talks about, the, uh, you have many chapters that talk about an arc of where, where things have come from, where they go. Did, when you were talking to any of these women, was there anything, any story that they were sharing where you said, I relate to that, that's how it was when I was young? Um, yeah, well, I wouldn't say that to them because that would well, be in inappropriate. <laughs> when I was your age. I'm an oh, interviewer. I, I really. uh, sure, of course. You know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of, a lot of things that they talked about in terms of um, trying to figure out how to you know, be the agents and the subjects of their own sexuality. I think we all have, have struggled with that. And in some ways, you know, people will say to me, well, you know, things haven't really changed. You know, the w- women and girls have always struggled with these things. And I think, yeah, but when so much has changed elsewhere, when so much has changed for us professionally, when so much has changed in our homes, when so much has changed in our schools, in our education, in our expectations, in our earning, in, you know, in so many ways we've made progress, not all the way progress, but progress. Why is this the one area where we're willing to say, oh, well, it's always been like that? I would like to, to end on some sort of positive yeah. note. You mentioned Dutch, the, Dutch. the Dutch. The Dutch, the Dutch. The Dutch are extraordinary yeah, at educating young people about sex. I know. What I'm, are they I'm, doing that we're not doing? I think it's in the wooden shoes. I think that we need to... Um, <laughs> and the treats that appear there. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things I... I mean, I end, as, as I said, I end the book in a co-educational classroom. And I actually end it on the image of a boy because I, I feel obviously that, that boys need to be more than included in this conversation. You know, they, they are part of the conversation. Um, and part of what I looked into was, you know, sort of what works. And one of the things that I found was comparisons of uh, Dutch college women and American college women, so comparing um, similar demographics, talking about their early sexual experiences. And what they found in those studies is that by every measure, whether you're talking about reducing negative consequences like pregnancy, like uh, regret, like disease, or whether you're talking about enhancing positive consequences like delaying intercourse, or knowing your partner very well, or enjoying the experience, or preparing responsibly, or you know, having a positive body image, everything, you name it. Everything that we want for our girls, the Dutch are superior. So, why? Well, Dutch parents, teachers, and doctors talk early, often, and frankly to their kids about sex and relationships. 
And one of the really salient differences that struck me as a mom, not just as a journalist, was that while Dutch parents were not necessarily more comfortable talking about sex than American parents, American parents, and here we are mostly talking about moms because as girls would say to me, fathers just make lame jokes. Um, American, fathers, Dutch fathers do talk to their kids though. American parents emphasized risk and danger. Dutch parents talk about balancing responsibility and joy. And that shift seemed to make the main difference in the daughters having agency in their sexuality, feeling that they could articulate needs, wants, desires, and limits, feeling they could enjoy themselves, feeling that they could be in a loving relationship. And in fact, with boys, um, one thing that uh, uh, Amy Shallot, who's a sociologist in Massachusetts, found, um, she compared the Dutch and Americans too and found that among boys, American boys will say that they want love and emotional connection with a partner, but they consider it a personal quirk and not one that their peers share, that other boys share. Dutch boys say, of course I would want to care about my partner. Of course I would love my partner. Of course girls should want to be doing this as much as I do. Of course they should enjoy this as much as I do. Of course you wouldn't want to be drunk. My father taught me all of that. Of course they did. So the lesson is move to the Netherlands. No. (laughs) The lesson is that talking to your kids, you know, is, is, is essential that we can start very young, naming their body parts, talking to them about personal limits, talking to them about how babies are made or fetal development, and opening the door to those conversations that we can then continue throughout their lives. So I'm going to ask just a couple more questions. So if you have a question that you want to ask, start coming up to one of these two microphones right here. Who is uh, Karis Dennison? Oh, Karis. Karis Dennison is, you can hire her. She'll come up here to your school, too. Um, Karis Dennison is the educator that I followed. And she, she calls herself a youth advocate, not a sex educator. She makes that distinction because she, you know, she really feels that she's in kids' corner. And she had all these different, she was the one in whose class the boys said the thing about the baseball, um, that, you know, the winners and the losers. And she has all kinds of um, exercises and ideas that I talk about in the book that get kids talking amongst themselves about these issues. And one of the things that she says that's, that I really like is um, that we need to treat life more like an English exam. So what she means is that these kids who are so bright and so you know, ambitious and so educated they would never go into an English test without knowing what book they were being tested on. And yet they will go to a party without even an idea of what they don't want to happen. You know? So to, to use the skills that you have in your academic life to think about, you know, consciously, I'm going out tonight. What do I not want to happen? What do I want to happen? How might I get there? And then, you know, if it ends up being really awful saying, hmm, why did that happen? Revise, you know, redraft, write another draft, do it again next time differently. You know, so so just just take some of those skills that we've honed so well with kids and teach them how to apply it in their personal lives. There are several young women here tonight. Uh, What would you want them to take away if they can remember one thing from walking out of this room tonight? Well, sex is a pizza. (laughs) And that they, you know, have every... 
you know, one thing that I thought about the other day about the sex is a pizza, I'd never thought about this before, but girls so often, one of the things Karis talks about is fallbacks. Fallbacks are your default behavior when you're under stress. And so for a lot of young women, the fallback is silence. For a lot of young women, the fallback is whatever you want, right? You know, which movie do you want to see? Whichever one you want to see. So the only problem with the pizza metaphor is if you say to the person, I don't have an opinion, whatever you want. You've got to have an opinion about the pizza girls. You've got to have a sense of your toppings. And you have to know what you want to eat and what you don't want to eat. Thank Nobody you. has any questions? Thank you so much. And we will take questions. There's one over here. Is there one over here? Walk up to the mic. Hello. I was wondering how we can stop everyday sexual harassment towards women and how we can start changing that every day. Because, I mean, oh, have my seat, you're a lady. Or women first. Oh, I said you were pretty. That's a compliment. And you're like, fuck off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a tall order. Um, <laughs> Can you fix that tonight? I think that that really starts, again, with educating boys. And, and in the first chapter of the book, I talk about um, a dress code controversy at a high school. And one of, you know, the, it's the beginning of the year, and the dean of the high school gets up, and he's talking to the kids, and he says, you know, girls, dress so your grandmother would approve. And one of the girls comes, raises her hand, raises her hand, comes up, and says... I think that you're blaming the victim, and this is what rape culture is about, and you know, I, if I'm, I should be able to dress the way that I want to and not be commented on. And, as she, and everybody cheered, and she was, you know, went back to her seat, and he said, I totally agree with you, Camilla, and there's a time and a place for that kind of clothing. So he went right back to it, and she said to me afterwards, she was really angry, and she said, you know, it doesn't matter what I wear. I get catcalled every day. I get grabbed. They accuse me of distracting boys, but nobody talks about how distracting it is to me to have my butt grabbed every time I get, get up and get a pencil, no matter what I wear. And you have to ask when the argument is... I mean, it's, it's a complicated... Again, complicated. You have to ask when the argument is about distracting boys, at what point do boys have to take personal responsibility? You know, is it when you wear a skirt to your knees? Is it when you wear a skirt to your ankles? Is it when you wear a burqa? Then you're in Afghanistan. You know, I mean, at what point do we expect boys to be able to not harass? At the same time, it troubles me to make, it seems kind of Orwellian to me to make the right to bear arms, midriffs, and legs, um, you know, the feminist battle cry. And I think that, we, that even as we say this is the distracting boys argument is, is not right, we have to look at the impact of self-objectification on young women um, cognitively, psychologically, sexually. You know, it's one of the bait and switches is that girls who self-objectify um, actually, and, and, and think of that as a form of self-confidence, have more difficulty articulating their needs, wants, and desires in the bedroom. And that confidence kind of comes off with their clothes. So having simultaneously the conversation that it's not your job not to distract young men, and why does the culture want you to 
present a certain way and see that as confidence and empowerment are two different uh, conversations. You can line Hello. up, too. It's okay. Thanks for being talking with us today. Um, I'm a higher education practitioner in the Seattle area, and my question is this. If you were going to run a program during freshman orientation um, about this topic, what would you say to those students? And probably more importantly, what would you ask of those students? You guys are asking me questions that nobody ever asked me. Um, <laughs> honestly, I, I don't think I can give that a flip-off-the-cuff answer. Um, I would really, really have to think about that. But you know, there's some because California is uh, has passed an affirmative consent law and is, has mandated sex education in um, high school now, and mandates affirmative consent as part of that sex education. They are start people are starting to develop curricula around that um, that hasn't previously existed. And what I would I would seriously encourage you um, to get in touch with Karis in, in the book because she's one of the people who is drafting that curriculum and she would have um, I think some really powerful ideas about how, how to address that effectively because I know everybody has that now but they don't nobody's really paying attention to it right Hi um, who, who did girls want to get information from if they could have picked anyone to have accurate information about sex, and at what age? Um, I think that depends on how you define sex. I mean, when people talk about what age, I think that there are age-appropriate ways that we need to be talking to kids from the beginning, whether it's naming your infant's body parts or saying to your masturbating preschooler, you know, I know it feels, it, it feels really good to touch your vulva, and we don't do it um, at the Thanksgiving table in front of... <laughs> Grandma, it's something that we do privately, you know, to, to, to both reinforce the idea that touching yourself pleasurably is good and we have public and private selves. Um, when kids get a little bit older, you know, you talk about how babies are made. You start talking about, um, you know, sexual behavior as being a way that people express affection and that feels good and that is something that you know that you do when you're older and various things and that also people can misuse it and force people to do something that they don't want to do and that's never right. I mean there's there's ways that you can talk about it all the way up and I think one person who's really great on that is Deborah Rothman who wrote a book called Talk to Me First. I think she really does a wonderful job. The other place that does the most wonderful job is the Unitarian Universalist Church. I don't know if we got any Unitarians out there, but um, they have a program called Our Whole Lives. That's a sex education curriculum that starts at five and goes, I think, until 69. <laughs> and it does. And uh, it was supposed to be funny. Um, and, uh, and, it's, and it's terrific. And it's comprehensive, and it tackles hard stuff, and you don't have to be Unitarian to. They, they, it's publicly available, um, so I think those are you know that I think that we have to be our children's educators, whether they want to hear it from you or they don't want to hear it from you doesn't really matter, you know. We have to be our children's educators because we cannot depend on our schools. I would like to say we could, but only 23 states in our country mandate sex education, and only 13 mandate that it be medically accurate. So, yeah. So you know, 
we have to we have to get out front and find ways to talk to our kids that are not just about the mechanics and the body rubbing, but that are about our values and our ethics and our ideas, so that they know that we're the go-to person for them. But did you find that kids, the girls that you talked to, that did they want to hear it from their parents, or would they have chosen somebody? It else? sort of depended on what their parents were saying, but. You know, there is research that says they do and that they particularly want to hear more about the emotional side and the relationship side of sex from us. And I did have girls who said to me, there was one who has been... I mean, I stay in touch with a lot of these girls. They continue to email me. We Facebook. We do, and at, once I got over the couple that I didn't do very well. And, um, and I think, you know, I'm really a total stranger to them. I talk to them for a few hours of their lives and they're writing to me and asking me questions about their sexuality because they don't have anybody else to talk to. And one of them recently wrote to me, she's 21, and she said, my mom still doesn't know that, I, that I'm not a virgin. And it really makes me sad that we've never been able to have... I'm an adult now, and we have never had a conversation about sex, and I hope that we can. Right over there. Hi. Uh, Town Hall hosted John Krakauer not that long ago uh, to talk about Missoula. And when I read it, I was like, telling my daughter, you have to read this book, you have to know what college is going to be like or could be like. And then I realized, oh my God, I have a 13-year-old boy. Has anyone done any research about the right messages for boys about the importance of sex being consensual? I don't think there's been nearly enough, but there are Did some. You do it then? Andrew Smiler has done some. Would I? Say? It's, it's something I'm thinking a lot about, actually. But Andrew Smiler has done some of that research. He writes well about it. Um, I think uh, Rosalind Wiseman's book. Um, I forget the first word. Something in Wingman. I forget. Anyway, Rosalind Wiseman. Um, Michael Kimmel writes really well about boys. Uh, Michael Thompson writes really well about boys. I think that there are people, but I don't think that too many people are addressing um, these issues head-on with boys, and I think that that's a real um, gap right now. Over there. Uh, Hi. Uh, As a 16-year-old, this is basically my life, what you're describing. I was just wondering... How do you suggest saying no? How do you say no to a culture that puts your sexuality above your feelings? Right. That reduces your, to your sexuality over and over. I think you have to just continually dissect it together. You know, I mean, I'll tell you, my daughter gets really irritated with me sometimes. You know, we'll be, like, we were watching Despicable Me too, um, and... I was, you know, because so this is a kids movie, right? This is like, I assume it's G-rated, right? Maybe it's PG, I don't know. But I was like, look, honey, her eyes are bigger than the, about the, the so they have this like um, uh, detective, female detective, and she's supposed to be the powerful woman character. And I'm like, look, honey, her eyes are still bigger than her wrists. Um, that's weird, isn't it? My eyes aren't bigger than my wrists. Um, <laughs> Look, honey, she's running. Why do they have to have her wear high heels? Why does she need to be, you know, wearing high heels when she's a police officer? And how is she supposed to run and chase the bad guy? And, you know, and she'll kind of go, Mom, can we just watch the movie, please? You know, but, but I know that those messages get... We Just the other day, we were looking at the DC... Um, the DC Comics has these new female um, superhero dolls... And we walked by them at Target, and, she, and I said, what do you think, days? And she said, I don't like them. And I said, why not? And she said, you know why not, Mom. 
<laughs> I said, yeah, but just, you know, humor me. <laughs> Tell me. And she said, their eyes are bigger than their wrists. They're all white. They have tiny little waists. They have huge breasts. They're all, you know, and, it's, and she could, you know, it's like, okay, brainwashing done. Very good job. But it's also about watching, I mean, you can watch Glee together and discuss, I mean, that's a great show for, I mean, I know it's like off now and the last seasons weren't any good, but the early seasons of Glee were a great place for teenagers to discuss some of these issues to surface. I mean, any place that you can surface the issues and acknowledge that they're complicated, that they're contradictory, that they're um, offensive even. I mean, one of the girls said to me, she said, I love Beyonce. I love Beyonce. But sometimes I wonder, would she be able to say the things that she says about feminism if she didn't look the way she did? And just that, I mean, that's a complicated thing to have to untangle for a young woman. Right, we're running out of time, but oh, I'm going to try to get through as many as we can. Over here? Okay. Yeah. Here? No, you, you first. Sure. Yeah. She's gesturing to you. You first, then we'll come over okay. there. Um, hi. First off, thank you for doing this. Um, it's really cool. Uh, I'm a junior, and I will be going to college in a year or so. And um, I think there's so much kind of fear around going and what might or may not happen. And I guess... Um, I was wondering if you had anything just to keep in mind as I'm going through that process and kind of opening that door. Well, that's partly why I wanted to write a book that in part talked a lot about what happens after yes and ideas about pleasure because I feel like um, the conversation around campus assault is so important, so important, but it also doesn't give us a lot of models of what healthy sexuality would look like and how to develop something that would feel good and right for you. Um, So I think learning as much as you can about that is one way to offset things that might feel scary. Hi, thank you so much. I'm just wondering, or this article, beyond the language of consent, that's basically talking about how the usage of consent keeps our wanting an external thing. Consent is a a technical term. It's a uh, lawyer speak almost, and it's not relevant. It doesn't talk about wanting and desire. But we keep talking about consensual sex, and we keep talking about did she say yes or no, but not lingering in the one. So how do we change that conversation? Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I th- consent is a really low bar, in fact, <laughs> right? Like, I was not assaulted is an incredibly low bar for a sexual experience. And, and it doesn't, and if you say yes, that does, it doesn't, almost like once you've said yes, it's like you're not allowed to have, um, what if it, you know? What if it's a crappy experience, but you said yes to it? You know, I mean, it, it it kind of flattens a lot out, and I think that that's why we do need to think a lot more about desire and and want and pleasure, so that it's not just about that. And I also think it doesn't have to be a legal document. I mean, one of the things Karis, the woman at the end of the book, talks about is that you don't have to be you know whipping out your your quill pen. Um, you can you know just saying, "You okay?" Is this still okay with you? Does this feel good? You know, I mean, learning how to talk to one... I think that learning how to talk to one another 
when we're having an intimate encounter in a way that is about communication, mutuality, reciprocity, pleasure, not just about yes or no, or even enthusiastic yes, you know, but, but an ongoing conversation is what we're trying to get at, that whether it's verbal or nonverbal, um, that indicates wanting, desire, need, satisfaction, pleasure, and encompasses all of those. All right. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Kaylee from Town Hall here. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have time for actually all the rest of the folks in line, and then we should probably... Okay, great. All right. So how about over here? Um, so I have a couple of questions, but I realize that those times. So um, one is I'm a healthcare provider, but I see women, uh, females from menarche onwards, and so I'm not there during their pediatric visits when may I might be able to actually identify body parts. So I'm, my question to you is, what is it that the Dutch providers are doing that American providers are not in the healthcare setting, or how are they having those conversations? Um, just keeping in mind that piece, and then the, the other question is you said you spoke to women of different ethnicities, and I'm wondering if any of those were uh, children of immigrant families, newly immigrated families, and how those conversations were affected. Because um, I've uh, definitely uh, seen that that can be a very complicated yeah. conversation when you have two different cultures, right. a series of cultures. I can't say, I, I did talk to people who were from immigrant families, but I can't say that I talked to enough of them to make any generalization about that. Um, but I think that that does absolutely um, complicate the question. Um, and, you know, I will be honest with you. The studies talk a lot more about what parents say than what doctors are saying in those closed-door rooms. But I'm wondering, um, not to put you on the spot, but there was somebody that, I, that spoke to me earlier, Abby. I don't know if you're out there somewhere, who was a, um, yeah, what do you say? She's a, tell, say who you are and what, and, and what you told me. <laughs> this is Abby. Abby is a doctor. She's, She's a, a doctor. general practitioner, is that correct? Yeah. Um, I started talking to my female patients about that sex should be pleasurable. And that they should be enjoying it. And that, whereas before I could get much more, less prevent pregnancy, less prevent disease, now I'm trying to talk about some of the enjoyable Could everybody hear that? Do you want to recap or can I? Uh, she said that she used to mainly talk about reproduction, sexual health, that sort of thing, and now she started to talk about, to some of her patients, uh, female patients, more about pleasure in sex as a part of her conversation. That sex should them. feel good. Yeah. yeah, that it should feel good, not just about reproductive organs and pap smears, I guess, right? You know, one, one of the things about, um, I, I, I want to get through the question, but one of the things that's in the research that really interested me was that we talk about sexual satisfaction as if it's one thing. And it's not one thing. It means different things you know, to individuals, but also it's gendered. And um, in co- young, co- young women are more likely to say than young men that to, they're more likely than young men to measure their satisfaction by their partner's pleasure. So to say, if he had a good, this is heterosexuals again. Um, if he had a good time, I had a good time. And young men are more likely than young women to measure their satisfaction by their own pleasure. So if I had a good time, I had a good time. <laughs> um, and so again, you know, disrupting that in some way by saying sex is supposed to feel good to you um, is is something that's important to understand. 
Right, you over here. Hi. Um, so as a teen, I sort of am always like fighting with the fine line between like not wanting to look inappropriate, but also wanting to wear what I am comfortable and confident in. Um, how do you suppose we can desexualize certain body parts to make girls be able to feel more comfortable and confident in what they want to wear? How do you think we can? Um, I mean, I would say, like, definitely this conversation is really helpful, but um, this is not, like, the whole um, group of people that need to be influenced. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, you know, again, I think as a conversation, it's partly why I wanted to end the book in a co-ed classroom, because it's a conversation that young women and young men need to be talking about together and that parents need to be talking you know I think it's really important that parents talk to boys not only about harassment but about the harm that sexualized images of women and girls caused them caused their emotional lives caused their sexual lives and you know and have these conversations with boys as well as girls um, yeah but how do you desexualize certain body parts so girls can wear what they want I don't know I mean that is an age old question isn't it <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, it's, it, that, that's really that's really hard. But I think that we start by having conversations about a, appropriate ways to treat one another. We, that you know, you don't treat somebody. There, it's just down that road of again, you know, you're distracting the boys. The only things that are at the end of that road are she asked for it. You know, that's the only thing that's at the end of that road. So that just isn't where we can go with this conversation. We have to go someplace else with it. Mm-hmm. All right. So I was going to sit down because my question was kind of asked, but um, I, I work as a pediatrician, and so I was going to ask kind of the same question of I'm talking about sex every day with boys and girls um, in the impressionable ages we're discussing, and um, I feel like I'm contributing to the fear and danger mentality because that is what I focus on. Um, that's just, I don't know, that's kind of what's been indoctrinated into me and what I need to make sure they know about, you know, even if they're not sexually active yet, knowing about contraception and condoms and those kind of things. But um, I also don't know them super well, so I don't want to try and open this whole can of let's talk about pleasure to a 12-year-old girl. I'd feel pretty uncomfortable doing that. (laughs) Um, So so what, I I guess, but I, I feel like I'm, potentially worsening a whole big culture conversation that we're talking about. So how would you suggest, like, the, the tone or the questions, or, or I, I should I to, keep doing what I'm doing? Yeah, I have to think about this more because I, I, it's really clear from just this conversation that physicians need some tools for this. And I, and I think we have to start talking about that, you know, maybe with the American Academy of, of Pediatrics, um, to think about what the best way for it. I'm going to think about this. I like this idea. Next book. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? The nurse, the nurse practitioners, practitioners too. Yeah. Nurse practitioners too. And I think that, you know, my guess is that um, nurse practitioners at Planned Parenthood would have a lot to say about this, um, that they might have some ideas. Um, I also think there's, you know, there's books that you can recommend to kids, like Heather Karina's book, um, or, or website, which is called S-E-X, a, I can't remember the subtitles very long. Um, hmm? Yeah, Scarlet Teen is her website. That was, I was about to say that. Scarlet Teen is, a, you can rec, re, just recommend that website to girls. That's a, it's a great, or in boys, it's a great, 
great resource. So is Go Ask Alice at Columbia University. Um, you know, if they're going to go look at stuff online, they might as well look at the right stuff online. Hi, um, thanks, and thanks for everybody for being here. That was appropriate. I so I study uh, younger men and sex at UW, and I also help train healthcare practitioners. So I, just, I don't even have a question. I just have nothing else to do after this. So I'm just going to sit over here. If people have any questions, so like tell, me, tell me your response. Tell me some of the things that you've been thinking, listening to folks. Oh my God, I can't even. Uh, I mean, I love that there's so many young people that got up and ask questions. So I think that that's like, that's the, and to have, um, to just have the recognition that, so I do a lot of qualitative research and just, I'll actually probably get choked up talking about this, but um, we think about like how uncomfortable it is to talk about like, well, first of all, we, we make an assumption that for everybody, it's uncomfortable to talk about sex all the time. This must be an uncomfortable conversation. It's really, it actually doesn't need to be. We don't need to, we could be talking about Brussels sprouts or shoes or whatever so so um so i think really uh, uh, challenging our own assumptions about how other people think about things like sex particularly as adults because we were also socialized in a particular way and so um and that's not your fault it's not there's not anything wrong with that but i think it's really important to like explore um the discomfort that maybe you you have as somebody who's facilitating those kinds of conversations and not being like, I'm the worst. I can't even talk to my kids about sex because I have all these like things inside of that. It's just like, that is just your, your history and your experiences like all of us are, but then practicing being able to sit in discomfort and, 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 and what that feels like. Um, and then I was thinking about, uh, where was I going with this? Um, oh, qualitative research. So I think uh, something that's been really powerful for me is that a lot of people have said, um, somebody said to me one time, what if the worst thing, or, or the best thing, whatever, I mean, we don't, I'm not pathologizing sex, but at the time we were talking about something that was really challenging, and they said, what if the worst thing that ever happened to you wasn't that thing, but nobody ever asked you about it? And I was like, or nobody ever believed you. And I was like, oh my God, that is so powerful, and like such a gift, because I used to be a social worker, and so as a researcher, there's a level of remove from that kind of intimacy, um, and, and an appropriate level of remove. I'm not somebody's therapist anymore, but you do have this very, I'm sure you experience over and over again, this really um, connecting relationship. I mean, you described it here about being able to continue a relationship. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the relationships with the girls and feeling, it was very, you know, obviously, it was a very intense experience to to talk to young women, not just because we were talking about something that, you know, because we were talking about sex and that's taboo or anything, but because of the emotions and um, silences that had been around the subject for them for so long. I sometimes would feel like we were, you know, like, like in this tiny space, like in a little rocket ship together or something, having these conversations. They were very intense, very emotional, and often really exhausting. Speaking of tiny spaces, I mean, that's emotions in boys is a much tinier. tinier yeah, come talk space. to me about that afterwards. So, anyways, please. I'll just sit yeah. over there. And healthcare practitioners, too. I have, there's lots more experts in the world, certainly, but I just happen to be in this room and <laughs> thank you. Place thank to go. you for that. Hi. Um, my daughter is seven, and um, we've, I feel like we've done a pretty good job so far of being really open and naming the body parts and talking about how sex works and how babies are made. We've read It's So Amazing 100, 100 times together, and she has all these questions. Love that's that really book. great. So at what point, what age-ish, developmentally, emotionally, 
and how do you start to transition from the mechanics and the you know the sex is something that grown-ups do to make a baby or to show each other love and pleasure into the reality of her eventual sexual relationships with a partner and like when do you start approaching that well in um when kids are are starting to be in that later elementary school age you can start asking them sort of like what how people talk about sex on the playground and what they're noticing and do you know how do people do are people giggly do they do it when adults are around do they not do it when adults are around what is that like you know sort of starting to ask them about what they're hearing in their own world because depending on where they go to school the playground banter can intensify um in later elementary school and that's also fourth fifth grade is when they start doing puberty education so you can start talking about um making sure that you know everything is named you can talk about um the you know the clitoris is for making good feelings um things like that and then i think you start getting into more kind of overt um sexuality education and talking about sexual behavior when um kids are more like maybe 7th grade but you know i would really encourage you to get um i the roby harris books are so great it's so amazing it's not the stork and it's perfectly normal great great essential books i uh, and i think the other one to look at that really does take a developmental psychology perspective for parents is that um talk to me first deborah rothman's book she goes through really from the get go um what's age appropriate sure that we're kind of out in front of all of this stuff yeah. that's a part of the fabric that's of exactly the, the language she uses oh, she okay. says you want to be out in front and she and she really explains how but i, I, I really encourage that overly like too much information too early she talks about that too great thank you <laughs> i really recommend that book yeah what's the name of it again also alvernacchio's book for goodness sex which one alvernacchio the pizza guy his book is called for goodness sex and it's also outstanding and both of those books really help frame it for parents about how to talk you know and when to talk okay thank you very much all right so i was wondering um after your book girls and sex was published and everything in that stage of writing a book was finished is there anything that you wish you had added afterwards after these were these books were on the shelves that you wish you had added to the book um that's a great question and i do feel like i've now been talking about this so long that it's been interesting i guess for me to see and i always feel this i was just well yeah i always feel this with the book that once the book is out i see what really resonates with people and then i wish i could pull it back and emphasize those things um and i guess if i was to write about one other thing the other thing that has been happening in the culture and it was happening very quickly um even since the book was written is um ideas around gender fluidity uh so i guess i would have liked to have explored that more if i had one more chapter to explore well thank you peggy orenstein so much for being with us tonight thank you all Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Peggy Orenstein spoke with Town Hall Seattle's Katie Sewell on April 20th. Thanks again to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Tune in again soon.